If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Great leaders promise to change the world. They claim to have the vision and the values to transform our lives, but rarely do they deliver. And instead, there is incompetence, deceit, and duplicity. Could it be that the hypocrisy is in fact ours, demanding ethical standards we do not apply to ourselves? Or is it simply the case that absolute power corrupts absolutely? To discuss leadership, hypocrisy, and power, we will be joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Joseph J. Ellis, global CEO of Havas Creative, Chris Hurst, and former leader of the Green Party, Natalie Bennett. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now I'll hand you over to our host for this debate, Miriam Francois. Hello and welcome to today's debate on leadership, hypocrisy, and power. My name is Miriam Francois. Welcome. Now, great leaders promise to change the world. They claim to have the vision and the values to transform our lives, but rarely do they deliver. Again and again, the promises are not kept. The transformation fails to arrive, and instead there is incompetence, deceit, and duplicity, not to mention corruption. Are leaders a singularly useless and malevolent bunch, or could it be that the hypocrisy is in fact ours, demanding ethical standards we don't apply to ourselves and which no one can live up to, and expecting leaders implausibly to solve intractable problems once and for all? Would we be better to stop vilifying our politicians and leaders and focus on the complexity and challenge of finding the best solutions? Or is it simply the case that absolute power corrupts absolutely? And should we redouble our oversight to ensure they remain in check? Now, to help answer these questions and many more, I'm joined by a fantastic panel. Kicking off it with Chris Hurst, who is a change agent, widely recognized as an innovative and inspirational leader. He's global CEO of Havash Creative and recently published his first book, No Bullshit Leadership, Why the World Needs More Everyday Leaders and Why That Leader Is You. 
Next up, Joseph J. Ellis is one of America's leading scholars of history. Ellis was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Founding Brothers, The Revolutionary Generation, and won the National Book Award for American Sphinx, a biography of Thomas Jefferson. And last but certainly not least, we have Natalie Bennett. Natalie is a British politician and journalist who served as leader of the Green Party of England and Wales from 2012 to 2016, and who now sits in the House of Lords. Welcome to our panel. Thank you for joining us. Are leaders a singularly useless and malevolent bunch, as some people seem to think? Natalie, do you want to kick us off on that one? Certainly. Well, um, to start with, I have to say that uh, when the How the Light Gets In was formulating this, I suspect they may have been looking very hard at either Westminster or uh, perhaps at the uh, the Trump White House a few months ago. Um, and you know, it's a very easy set of labels to apply and there's definitely some truth in them. Uh, but if you look around the world, um, if this is all leaders, then that's clearly not the case. Uh, you know, the obvious example that comes to mind is Jacinda Ahern in New Zealand, who's been doing great things, not just in tackling the pandemic, but also in terms of offering real leadership on environmental issues, on social issues, on working with the Indigenous people in New Zealand, not doing perfectly, but making real progress. And even, you know, somewhat closer to home, Angela Merkel, um, lots of people are now, she doesn't come from my side of politics, but lots of people are now wondering, you know, how is not just Germany, but Europe going to work without that. But I think, you know, some of your introduction really gave us some sense of where, where the problems lie here. The idea of great leaders, if you call someone a great leader, you know, that's really not good for anyone's mental health and well-being and the kind of way they're going to operate. Um, if, you, um, if you talk about absolute power and if you give anyone absolute power, giving a saint an absolute power is innately a really bad idea. So, you know, I think the, the question in this debate is focused very much on individuals. But what we have to do is ask, um, where are the real leaders in our society? And I'm talking to you from Sheffield in Northern England, you know, up the hill from me, there's a, there's a council estate that's got some real problems of poverty and inequality, but there's some great people there doing community work, growing food, getting food to people who really need it. There's brilliant, you know, in Britain, there's millions of great leaders doing great things. What we really have to do is question what we mean by leader and ensure that we acknowledge that we have any country has millions of them. Thank you, Natalie. Joe, are leaders a singularly useless and malevolent bunch, as some people seem to think? Depends on where you want to land in history to answer that question. If you land in the present, as the earlier speaker mentioned, and you look at Great Britain and the United States in recent years, you'd be very troubled. Um, um, uh, if you look at the American founding, um, it's a pretty impressive group of men. Um, and uh, who uh, did about the best one can expect of an emerging power. Um, and what made it work at that moment, which relates to the question, is a diversity of temperaments and ideologies that interacted in such a way uh, to uh, balance each other and um, to avert the kind of uh, extremism that dictators will eventually be able to bring to bear in places like, uh, well, Napoleon, uh, Stalin, Lenin, Mao, um, are, the, are those people leaders? Um, well, yeah, they certainly are. I mean, look at Nuremberg, um, uh, but they take a nation in the, each of those cases in a direction that, uh, that history records and judges to be the wrong direction. Um, uh, 
uh, I think the greatest leader uh, in the 20th century is um, the, the man who rescues India from the British Empire. One of the historical tests of a great leader who is not too far out of uh, far ahead of public opinion in a democracy because you can't be um, uh, is uh, I mean in the United States the three greatest leaders of all time are George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Martin Luther King. The last two of them got assassinated. If you get assassinated historically, that means you're probably a great leader. Um, so what do you expect? The problem is expectation. Um, uh, American novelist once said that every book in America could be called Great Expectations. Um, and um, the problem is in our, our, our expectations of the people we elect for, or we choose. Um, but democracies uh, worldwide or any kind of popular opinion worldwide has a tendency towards charismatic leadership which is dangerous and leads you to uh, the dictatorial pattern that destroys the very thing that you're supposed to be um, creating. Thank you so much, uh, Joe. Chris, uh, three minutes on our leaders, a singularly useless and malevolent bunch. So my, so my short answer is no, I don't think most leaders are. Uh, but for me, most leaders, um, uh, and Natalie it touched on this, for me, most leaders are not prime ministers, politicians, CEOs, and generals. Uh. Uh, it, for me, a leader is anybody who has people they're responsible for. And by that definition, there are certainly hundreds of thousands in the UK and, and certainly millions around the world. So whether you run the projects Natalie was talking about in Sheffield, a hospital, a, a school, a startup or a government department, or, you know, you're a leader. Um, and I think one of the greatest and most damaging fallacies of the subject of leadership is that it's some exalted state, you know, a secret knowledge available only to a chosen few. And for me, everybody has the potential to lead. There's no leadership type and therefore no innate leadership characteristic, good or bad. Um, and though, so I definitely don't think all leaders are useless and malevolent. I do think there's a vacuum. I do think we need more better leaders everywhere, again, from hospitals to government. And I think leadership is difficult, but not complicated. And there's a whole industry, the, the leadership industrial complex, if you like, that makes millions, possibly billions from persuading us of the exact opposite, from persuading us that there is some secret knowledge available only to a chosen few. And I think this snake oil has two baleful consequences. I think firstly, it inhibits those already in leadership potential, already in leadership positions from fulfilling their potential. And as we've just established, there's an awful lot of those. And I think secondly, potentially worse, it excludes whole swathes of our society from believing that leadership is something that they could ever aspire to. So no, I don't think all leaders are useless, but yes, I do believe that we need more better leaders and leadership because at the end of the day, if you look at the problems, any organization, whatever it is, however big it is, if you look at the problems and challenges they face and they all have them all the time, if you pick at that problem for long enough, if you peel away its layers like the skin of an onion, you discover at the heart the problem is always leadership. And the only solution to it is better leadership. So expressed like that, leadership's the problem and the solution. And I think by wiping away the bullshit that surrounds the subject and enabling and inspiring more to lead and to lead effectively, we can achieve amazing things as great leaders, famous and unsung, let's be honest, uh, have always done.
Thank you very much. Um, just before we move to theme one, I know Natalie, you wanted to come back quickly on something there. Well, I just wanted to pick up something Joe said about these in democracies, there's a tendency towards charismatic leadership. And I think, you know, the example of Angela Merkel, for example, that I gave, who, you know, is one of the very most prominent leaders in the world today, very much resolutely uncharismatic, wearing the most boring jackets you could possibly imagine and never, <laughs> and never actually, you know, coming forward and saying, you know, it's my personality, I'm leading you into the future. And if you look at, you know, what that perspective is, is very much an Anglo perspective, a perspective from the first past the post electoral systems like Australia, like America, like the, like the UK. Um, and there are other ways of doing democracy. I would say much better ways of doing democracy, which as, you know, Chris was, was heading towards, you know, if you get lots of people involved in engaged, then that, you know, is a true democracy. And I'm not going to debate with Joe about, you know, the nature of the founding of America, because uh, I'm not going to do that with the historian of it. But, you know, what yeah. was created was a structure that was basically designed to hold down the people, uh, not to empower the people. And that's, you know, one of the problems that continues to this day. Well, thank you for kicking us off there with some uh, food for thought, definitely. But it, and it leads us really nicely, actually, into the first question, which is, what do we require of our leaders and how should we judge their success? And I'm going to ask Joe to kick us off on this one it's with the studying you've done and particular, you know, pivotal figures in history. What can you teach us or what, what have you learned about the requirements of, uh, that we have of our leaders and, and what is a barometer that, that is helpful in assessing their success? Help me understand who we is. Well, um, I would say the people, as in those who are not in ah. leadership. So mm. I think in, in a democracy, it's uh, everyone who, who doesn't get to make the decisions directly well, speaking. All right. I mean, the, the American founding generated the first uh, nation-sized republic in modern history uh, and became the model for the liberal state. It destroyed the monarchies of Europe. Uh, in the 19th century and helped win the war against uh, Nazi and uh, Germany and Russia in the 20th century and destroyed both, um, both forms of totalitarianism. Um, so it's a good thing, right? But in 1787, when it was created, we the people referred to adult white males with property. There were great achievements and triumphs. It's the first, as I say, nation-sized republic, the first uh, former colony to win its independence from the mother country. Think about Great Britain. It only lost one war between 1750 and 1950, and that was it. Um, uh, it created. It was the first place to establish a secular society, elimination of church and state. And it was the first nation to say sovereignty didn't have to reside in a single place, multiple sovereignties. That was federalism. Those are great things. It also, however, uh, created genocide in slow motion for the Native American population and left slavery un, uh, unrestricted. Um, and, uh, and millions of African-Americans born between 1787 and 1861 uh, led miserable lives. The triumphs and the tragedies coexist. If you expect only triumphs, you're a child. Um, you're, it's like you're looking at your parents as all, as all powerful. Um, uh, we need to put away childish things and expect the, the triumphs and the tragedies always to interact. Um, and once those expectations are harnessed and made real, 
the likelihood of us selecting tyrannical uh, leaders to carry us over the cliff into the abyss re is reduced. I'll shut up. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Um, Natalie, um, is it childlike to have these expectations of our leaders that they might have a flawless um, presentation of, of their leadership? Well, I think this is where we, if you rely on one person, um, it's clearly impossible for one person to be right all of the time. And anyone who claims that they are is a deeply dangerous individual who should never be allowed near any position of leadership, um, you know, including leading the local, local uh, bowls club. Um, uh, but I think in terms of tackling this question, like Joe, I would come to the question of who's the we. And um, what I would say is in, again, the Anglo countries, um, one of the we's that is very important and influential is the media. Um, and you know, the media likes a big charismatic figure. I, I can say this because I used to be a journalist myself. I finished as editor of the Guardian Weekly and worked for the Times and the Bangkok Post, among others before that. Um, that, you know, it's very easy if you've just got one person to go to, one person to write about, one person to profile. If you actually want to explore the ideas, what people are standing for, what society should do, how we should move to a better place, that requires a much more sophisticated, much more thoughtful kind of journalism. And you, what um, our countries share, the Anglo countries share, is a handful of right-wing media tycoons who were chasing after clickbait before clickbait was even a word, um, who were, you know, after making money out of their, their, um, uh, their, their publications after making a big splash. And so we have had systems that have very much um, expected people to have the answers, to be able to provide the perfect solutions, like Joe was just saying, to solve every problem. Um, but what you find is actually, again, when I spend time in continental Europe with different kinds of media systems, their media, you know, I was once watching a French daytime talk show um, that spent a whole hour talking about whether to build a dam or not. Now, my French is a bit shaky, but they actually spent an hour having a really detailed discussion of the, of the sociology, of the biology, of the issues of this one dam. And I've never seen any kind of thing like that in Anglo media anywhere looking at issues. So what we collectively, the people, have is a framing of politics drawn from our media that is very much expecting leaders to provide perfect solutions, perfect answers, to know all the answers. Natalie, and, you know, it, isn't, that, isn't that similar to the debate we're having about the tunnel under Stonehenge? I mean, aren't we debating that endlessly? Um, well, no, I mean, what we don't see is, do you see an hour-long debate on national television that really yeah, gets into the depths? What we see is, I mean, American and, and also very British, right, we've got two sides and one side gets a minute and the other side gets a minute and then we've covered that issue and moved on to the next thing. So we go over the same ground again and again, but we don't actually say anything in depth. Well, it's interesting you say that because I think Fran I'm be interested to know when that damn debate was because I think uh, the the biggest news channel in France today is Sin News, which is uh, very much a Fox News inspired uh, news network. So I, I wonder whether that's uh, also changing uh, in France. Chris, um, I'd love to bring in your uh, personal theories of leadership um, in in a business context. I mean, what what do we require from our leaders? How how can we assess? their success and is there anything transferable from that to I guess the political domain? Um, well I'd make three observations it's interesting so if every one any one of the three of us has said who is the we and and actually that my, my <laughs> answer is who do we mean 
which leaders are we, when we say leaders, who do we mean? Um, but I would say, first of all, if I look at the, the essence of the question, how do we judge their success, for example, I think this is true of all leaders and ultimately leaders are judged by results. I mean, that, that is the only ultimate measure of success of a leader. Now, that, that, that I don't intend that in a sort of a, a, a cold, hard way. The results doesn't always mean money. Results need probably more often doesn't mean money for the vast majority of leaders. That could be all sorts of things that you want them to achieve. But I think the way you can e explore that point is by considering the opposite. All leadership, by definition, for me, is about change. Leadership is not about the maintenance of the status quo. Uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a way of understanding a leader is if that person isn't there, if that person isn't leading the group, does it perform as well without them? And if it does, then <laughs> why on earth are they there? So I think I, I do think that results ultimately is the measure of a leader. But I, I'd make two other observations um, in that sort of transferable, this, let's say the special case of politics versus other forms of leadership. And I think I get asked this question a lot. And I and I think one of the huge challenge, one of the huge differences is that the things you need to be good at as a politician in order to get to a leadership position are completely different to the things you need to be good at once you're in that position. To, to be a politician in, in a democracy, whatever system, whatever cultural system you have, France, Germany, the US, UK, you have to be good at winning elections. That's persuading people to vote for you. Uh, and I don't know who it was, Joe, you'll tell me, but whoever it was, Roosevelt, whoever it was who said the first thing you need to be good at as a, to be a politician is to learn to count. Um, and, and that, you know, and that is true. And of course, a lot of people as well are making voting decisions based on a negative. They're often choosing the who they consider to be the least worst. Politicians know this and therefore you get a lot of negative campaigning. So this is, of course, true, true of, our, of, of, of UK and US. It's not true of other systems where people can vote positively. Uh, there will be systems that aren't that, but I think let's take the example you've mentioned a couple of times. I think we will see that in the final round of the French uh, presidential election, where I think an awful lot of people will decide on the least worst of the options. Um, so I, I think that, that one of the things that's implicit in what you say that it's really important is in any society that, that is democratic, one of the skills of a leader is to gauge how far ahead of public opinion or popular opinion he or she moves. In other words, in a democracy, you can't get too far ahead. If yeah. you lead too far ahead, um, uh, you lose the election, um, or as the examples I tried to say uh, earlier, uh, you get assassinated. Uh, <laughs> so that leadership in a, um, in a democratic society requires a different set of skills than one in an autocratic society. Yeah. But that can result in caution if you take the case study of Ireland, where um, mm. you actually had people's assemblies that showed the politicians were well behind both on gay marriage and on abortion rights. The uh, politicians were way behind the people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But, I, but, but the thing that you said earlier that is really important is that the, the, as a historian, when you ask me about leadership, I always start thinking about great political leaders at the national level, et cetera, et cetera. But that in our daily lives, in both the United States and the UK, uh, the leadership that we see is on a daily basis is local, and mm -hmm. it's um, it's it's neighbors helping each other or not. But um, the same people who voted for Donald Trump, 
who I don't agree with at all are taking care to make sure to pick up my garbage and to make sure that the snow and the snow hits at the Green Mountains here in Vermont, they, they clear it away. And we have close relationships on that basis. We don't agree politically on anything, but, um, but I think of them as leaders. And, um, and, and, um, and, you know, like if you're on the top of your house and there's a flood and somebody comes to rescue you, you don't say, did you vote for Trump? You say, thank you. Um, um, so leadership continues to exist at a local level, regardless of the political system. And this is true in the medieval period and the pre-modern period. It's true in China as it is in UK, et cetera, et cetera. There is some sort of universal, eternal set of, of things, that, but they become visible only at the intimate and the local level. So, but listening to you speak there, isn't there something about leadership that is also about not being a polarizing figure? You know, I'm thinking of, you know, we mentioned Trump a few times. I'm, I'm sure none of you were going to refer to Trump as an example of great leadership, but you've just referred to people who vote for Trump, for example, as being good local leaders. And I just wonder is, you know, is there something, what, what are the qualities that we're talking about here? Is it um, it, maybe is, could the panel maybe list an example of a good leader from recent times or history and, and what it is about their leadership that you particularly admire? And uh, feel free, uh, you know. I, 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 will, I will start this and I'll say the greatest leader in Britain in the 20th century is Winston Churchill. Um, and that's from 1938 to 1945. But notice the British people hurl him right out of office in 1945. Mm -hmm. um, the greatest leader in the world in the 20th century is Mahatma Gandhi, who happens to be the person that creates India, which, which Churchill thinks should remain inside the British Empire forevermore. Um, they disagree fundamentally. And um, I think that uh, Gandhi's the greatest leader because the number of people he affected is greater than anybody else. And it's the, the commitment to a nonviolent approach, which also inspires Martin Luther King, who's the greatest leader in America in the 20th century. Um, um, uh, judgments about effective leadership can only be made after sufficient time has passed to have perspective on what the achievement really was. Um, if you look at Nuremberg in 1932 and you see Hitler standing there in the crowd going nuts, you think, boy, this is going to be great. Go to Nuremberg in 1946 and watch the trials and you know what it's created. And so your judgment on that person is, but, but popular majorities are vulnerable to charismatic leaders. And therefore, most of the students of leadership in the United States suggest that charismatic leadership, and I agree with what was said about Merkel, not qualified in that at any way, that's worrisome. That's worrisome. Um, and, um, and history in this sense teaches, he says with great authority, um, the popularity is different from what's in the public interest. The United States is not really a democracy. It's a republic, res publica things of the public. The public interest is different from the, what the polls show at any given time. And the leader is the person willing to take that more unpopular position. In some sense, the greatest president in American history is John Adams because he was willing to be unelected, not to go to war with France in order to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, that's unthinkable in 20th and 21st century America now for anybody to, to effectively uh, uh, 
act in a way that he knows is going to end in his not in being thrown from office. Um, the only people worthy of service in the Congress now, I think, are people willing not to be uh, reelected. And there's not very many of them. I, I, can, I, can I jump in with a question? Because yeah. I think both of uh, uh, both Anthony and Joe have talked about charisma. Ka- Charisma, and I think I, I I want to feel like I'm putting words into your mouths, but I feel like you, you both broadly in agreement that this is a dangerous or thing to be wary of or even avoided in in right. or leads to I I mean I can I, I accept that there have been charismatic leaders who perhaps we would well, certainly we would all agree were a bad thing, but I I don't see and I can't I can't formulate an argument in my mind as why charisma is per se a bad thing for a leader for me. I mean, for, I mean, and let's, let's, I don't want to, us all to pick on Angela Merkel, by the way, who is clearly an incredibly, <laughs> an incredibly impressive and successful uh, leader. But, I mean, I've never met Angela Merkel, but I've never assumed that she's not charismatic. I think perhaps she doesn't fit some of the more conventional, uh, almost stereotypes perhaps of how we see leaders, but um, I, I would have, if you just asked me, I would assume she would certainly have charisma. If you're in a room with Angela Merkel, I imagine she's Obama, very- Obama, Nelson Mandela. I mean, there were many, I think, charismatic leaders that we could yeah. probably say. I, I think that the, the, the phrase here, of course, and, and you know, the question is, that ha- the word that hasn't come up yet is gender. Um, and I would argue that charisma, as constructed in our societies, is a profoundly gendered concept. Um, and it is very much seen as that man riding up on the white horse talking mm. loudly, standing tall, all of which are things which, you know, they're not necessarily behaviours solely contailed to men, but they're all things, um, mm. you know, and, and I would say, you know, I think um, if you say we're looking for someone with charisma to lead the party, um, you know, what you're not doing is looking for someone with a vision, looking for someone yeah. with principles, looking with, with someone with the ability to, you know, bring people together to encourage other people to be leaders. Um, yeah. So focusing on charisma as a quality you want, um, you may have it, and that's, you know, yes, it's yes, a positive influence. But if you say what we want is a charismatic leader to lead mm. this party, to lead this country, to lead this company to, you know, I mean, going outside um, uh, leadership of countries, going to companies, you know, there's been some absolute disasters, crash and burns of companies with charismatic leaders yes. uh, that have led them to disaster. So that leads us very nicely to theme two, because uh, theme two is about whether we criticize and vilify our leaders too much. Um, Is there, how would we assess that question, Chris? How do we determine whether we are criticizing and vilifying our leaders too much? What's the right amount? I think perhaps we expect a bit too much, which is which is possibly part of the first question. And one of my examples for that is is to do with failure. So I think it is a reasonable observation to make that that nobody in any context achieves anything worth doing without lots of periods of getting stuff wrong and failing um, and having to sort of get themselves back up onto their feet and get going again. Um, And I think it is inevitable that the if you're running a country or anything of any size, you're going to get things terribly wrong sometimes. Um, and and I think there is a there is a there is a difficulty there, which is that that failure, that ability to even even something like admitting you've changed your mind. Let's not talk about huge kind of cataclysmic, you know, currency crashes. Let's just talk about a minister saying that they've changed their mind. Um, I, I mean, and you, we 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 need politicians 
who change their mind. Uh, we need politicians who, once they understand things better, they, they, they say, yeah, I, I think differently now. And yet there's nothing that the media, their political opponents, et cetera, I don't know whether this phrase exists in the US, but the U-turn, you know, is the, you know, it's, it's headline news if a minister changes their mind. And, and I think this causes real problems because we need politicians who will often get put into jobs and roles they have almost no experience of. <laughs> at first, and we need them uh, to change their mind as they're going along. And 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 I and I think in some ways we haven't talked a bit much yet about. We've talked a lot about politicians. We haven't talked much about how we interact with them. And I think in that sense, I do think we have unrealistic expectations. And and I also think to this point about how far you are or ahead or otherwise of public opinion. Um, I think that sometimes politicians believe that people don't really like being told the truth. Uh, you know, we, we, we are encouraged to try and, um, well, they seem to believe that it's important to present very complicated situations as having very simple answers. Uh, and, I, and I'm not just saying that, and obviously that's a classic thing that populists do, but I, I, I feel like I see that increasingly across the political spectrum of all politicians. And, and, and as long as that continues, I'm not sure that we're gonna get the right answers because there are very few things that have simple, very few things uh, in the real world that have simple answers. And I do think that we would benefit from having politicians who were able to maybe have a little bit more, I don't know, Charisma, courage. I, do, I use the word charisma deliberately there, by the way. But you know, yeah. to actually tell us the truth sometimes and say, you know what, I don't have all the answers. And by the way, there aren't simple answers to this. But this is what I think, and this is what we're going to try. Well, Natalie, can I bring you in there because you have been in a position of political leadership, and did you feel that you know? I know that there's a lot of talk, for example, of uh, the slack that Diane Abbott gets, for example, and other politicians, particularly women, particularly women of colour. I mean, do we? vilify and criticize our leaders too much did you feel that and what would have been the difference between i guess a legitimate um accountability uh of by the media by the public and i suppose maybe a vilification that's that's not necessarily constructive to the role well i think what happens is there's far far too much focus on personality and on individuals and not actually on the decisions made and i'll pick up the point that chris said said about courage and if you actually have some principles, you know what you stand for and you can explain things. And I think Chris was absolutely right that, you know, um, th there's a pressure on politicians to say, right, here's the answer. And this ties up with what Joe was saying in terms of, um, okay, you know, the, 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 we expect you to have a politician who's going to solve all the problems, have all the answers, end up with a perfect society. Um, actually, the practical reality is that, you know, very often, you know, like, for example, with the pandemic in many cases, um, we have inadequate amounts of information lots of the way along the line. Um, there's no good solution. There are bad outcomes from each of the choices that you make. Now, if you have a kind of leadership that actually says, you know, well, I'm going to tell you the honest truth. And I have some principles and you know, these principles are the principles that guide me. And what we've actually had, you know, increasingly, particularly in British politics, but perhaps also in the US, is politicians who don't stand for anything, um, who just stand for getting into power. And, you know, I don't know why David Cameron, who I had some personal contact with, wanted to be prime minister beyond wanting to be prime minister. I don't think that Boris Johnson had any idea of why he wanted to be prime minister. He just wanted to be prime minister. And if you don't stand for anything, um, then you can't get up and say, well, my principles are equality, fairness, public health. 
I'm applying those principles. We have this situation. These are the three choices and I'm making this choice because of that. And I know there'll be some bad outcomes, but that is the way it is. And that's the kind of grown up proper leadership that we just simply don't see in many parts of the world. But coming back to also to that question of, you know, why don't we see those? Do we vilify too much? It might surprise you to say that the simple answer to that question, I'm going to say, yes, we do vilify too much because we don't, in focusing on the person, we don't consider enough why we have systems that have put that wholly inadequate person into power, um, why that person you know, isn't equipped to deal with the situation they're in, why they're in an impossible situation, why they're given more power than they can control or manage. And so if we're focused on vilifying the person, we're not saying how on earth did we end up with this bunch of people running the country in the first place. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Joe, do uh, you want to come in? I know you've written about the Freudian relationship we have with our leaders. Uh, um, do, do you want to bring, 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 bring your views in on that? Uh, yeah, although that makes it sound like I'm sort of a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist, and I'm not, and I, I don't trust a lot of the sort of what they call the, that kind of history done. Uh, but I tried to make the analogy in terms of the assessment of the founding generation in America. Uh, all new nations probably require mythical heroes. I mean, um, Romulus and Ramus for Rome, um, King Arthur for England and Britain, um, El Cid for Spain, and um, the founders for America. The difference between the rest of them is they are real people. Their other are fictional characters. And... Um, uh, and they're going to, therefore, and I come up with the, what you're, I think, referring to uh, is that ask, you ask the audience this question, how many of you are parents? They all raise their hands and you say, how many of you have had this experience? When your children are very, very young, you can do no wrong. In fact, you are God. And at some point they pass a line, whether that's biological or psychiatric or metabolic, I don't know. But when they pass that line, you can do no right. In fact, in Freudian terms, this is where they want to kill you. <laughs> um, and that's a very good uh, description of the American popular opinion or historical opinion toward the founding generation. Initially elevated and mythologized and capitalized throughout most of the 19th century and into the 20th century, all of a sudden they're the deadest, whitest males in American history. Um, and it's time to put, put away childish things and, uh, uh, and to understand that no leaders are imperfect and godlike. And if you have that expectation, the problem is in you, which answers the question we had at the beginning of the program. Um, um, and that, that if you create a constitution, and I know Britain does not have a written constitution, but they have a constitution. It creates a framework in which you continue the dialogue. It's not a set of answers. It's a framework in which argument itself is the answer. Um, and if you're willing to accept that definition, then leadership is a willingness to allow that argument to keep going on and moving forward in a direction that we call progress. Well, um, that can take us now then to theme three, which is uh, the idea of change, I guess, and how do we change our politics? How do we change our political culture to encourage better leadership? Um, and I suppose, you know, we've, we've kind of touched on some of these. I'm guessing, Natalie, that you may have something to say about the focus on 
um, you know, single leadership versus group policies. But what, what, what do you think are some of the constructive ways in which we could, uh, we the people, uh, could be demanding uh, positive change in uh, our political leadership? I'll start with a phrase which I often use, which is that politics should be what you do, not have done to you. And Britain's um, uncodified constitution that Joe was just referring to um, hasn't essentially changed in 100 years in terms of how Westminster operates. There's, of course, been devolution of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, there's been um, changes in policies, obviously, but essentially the structure of the House of Commons and the House of Lords and the way they operate hasn't changed very much. And it's a deeply strange place, as I was saying. It's not just the meek and the maces being marched around the place by men and women in tights, that's the issue, uh, underlying is a structure that, that you know, simply doesn't work, hasn't changed in 100 years. And if you, if, you, know, the, if you think about how much the world has changed, um, and what I would say is do politics to everybody. And by politics, I mean getting engaged, getting empowered, understanding that you can be, have to be, in a world of economic, environmental, social, political, educational crisis, we need everybody to be a leader to get involved. And you know, whether that's organizing a litter pit in your local community, whether that's campaigning for a pedestrian crossing, whether that's starting a campaign. When I go into schools, I say, start doing politics, look around the school, see what you don't like and start a campaign to change it. At which point the teacher who invited me goes, oh, what have I done? Uh, but um, you, how do we, the people collectively get change is by creating that change for ourselves from the ground up. And then we will get leaders at every level, many, many leaders. And, you know, there is ultimately going to be, you know, a group of people called something like a cabinet. Um, we'll get something like the right sort of people in those leadership roles. Um, if we're all engaged in making sure that they're directed in the right way, uh, led in the right way um, and chosen in the right way. Um, Joe, I want to bring you in on the success of China, uh, a, comp a country to see a very different leadership model. Um, should this change how we and what we think of leadership altogether? I think it needs to broaden the conversation that all of us have been having because we're, we are part of the Anglo-Saxon tradition and Britain and the United States are the two leading examples of that, that world and Australia, New Zealand, Canada fit into there too. Um, all, by the way, former colonies of Great Britain. Um, uh, I think the dominant question on the table for the planet right now is whether, well, the dominant one is whether we solve, we resolve climate change issue in a way before the planet is destroyed. I think that that really is the existential question. But the political question is whether the democratic or liberal framework or the autocratic authoritarian framework is the one that will win out in the long run. Um, and I think that question is up in the air. Um, and it will be resolved by the success of China and the, the, the nation states that pursue that model. Um, and uh, by right now, the United States and Western Europe, um, which I hope Britain is still part of, um, um, uh, and that the answer to that is not available to us. In the West, and we assume the answer is the liberal tradition. We assume that is going to succeed. And we have a lot invested in that. And there's good reason that we do. 
but I think the question is open. Um, and um, I, I don't like that, but I'm afraid that, I, I wonder what uh, Natalie and Chris think about what I've just said. Yeah. Well, I, I'd like to address the question of the, the success of China, because I think if we look at the perspective of this, China is an absolutely enormous place with a you know huge, huge population. Um, but there's an interesting comparison to be made between China and South Korea, both of which started at more or less the same mm. development position. And actually, arguably, South Korea is the successful one um, that's actually done far better on economic measures, on human rights measures, on the well-being of people's measures, um, all kinds of measures. South Korea has done better. So I think you know, the question is, you know, is China really a success story? How stable is it? Um, and, um, you know, uh, despotic regimes, authoritarian regimes, we've been through so many. And, you know, when they fall apart, they tend to fall apart in very, very bad ways. Um, so in some ways, perhaps for, for Joe, we need the perspective of history here. But, you know, really do question the issue of, you know, China's um, proclamation of how successful it's been, because um, you know, there are some real questions to be asked there. Certainly, I think if we focus in on how we define that success, I would agree if you were asking uh, the Uyghurs um, sat in concentration camps, they would have a certainly different view on that. Um, I want to I bring Chris in here. Uh, Chris, you suggest that we change our way of thinking to focus more on, on policy and real achievement. How can we achieve that? How do we achieve the type of leadership that will be most beneficial to our societies? Well, I think I, I wish I had a real. I mean, yeah, here's, here's an easy one, Chris. Thanks yeah. for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I don't have a clear answer to that. What, what, what I but what I'd say is I think that in all of our um, uh, societies, this might seem like uh, an obvious thing to say, but but our societies, we, we're talking about our societies as though they're static. And by the way, and now I'm talking about the US and the UK, but Europe, let's say the West, and and they're not. The societies have changed. Um, they've changed dramatically um, over the years. Um, I, I I think Joe's point is an interesting one. That 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 one way of interpreting what he said was that we shouldn't take that for granted. We shouldn't take the fact that the, 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 the progress, let's say the social progress, the economic progress, et cetera, that societies have made is, is a one way street. And I think we have to, you know, whilst looking at how we continue to develop that, we shouldn't take that, that, uh, that model as, uh, as for granted and set in stone. Th that said, to, to, try and, to try and think about your, your question, at the end of the day, we can be very critical, I think, of our uh, political leaders, but, but our political leaders are us. I mean, they're people from our society. Uh, you know, we do elect them. Yes, it's it. We we have. Uh, it's not like it's not like. I think I'm not a historian, but as I understand it, you know, in Athens, wherever the word came from, literally anybody could just lob their name in, and if you got the most bit, most votes, you won. That isn't how it happens. Now we know that we've got these we've got these set structures and set systems that, to an extent. Um, you know, put an awful lot of frameworks around how our democracy actually works. But nevertheless, our leaders come from within our societies and are chosen by us. Um, I, I do think that that if people that if our societies want to change and they aren't happy with the kind of people that we have leading them, they I, I fundamentally believe that we as individuals can do something about that. I think that we have to continue to believe and and I think possibly. Many people don't, by the way. 
political leaders that want change, political leaders that say, hey, don't just keep voting for the same people vote for me, I think have to start by making individuals believe that the control lies within them. At the end of the day, I think we become very good at being critical of all the things that other people don't do very well, all the things that we wish that they would do differently. But at the end of the day, the only person that ultimately we can really control us is ourselves. I fundamentally believe that. I talk to, I talk about change in front of people an awful lot. And, and, and what I, and most people always pretty well accept your argument. Yes, it would be good if we did such and such better and differently. But what they, but what they then do is they think very quickly about all the things that other people could do differently. And actually, you don't want them to do that. You want them to only think about the things that they're going to do differently in, in order to get to that, because change happens when individuals change what they do. So, so I do think if we want our societies to change, I think I think leaders have to persuade. Uh, groups of people that what they think and what they do and what they vote for matters and can make a difference. I think that would be my start point because democracy is powerful. It has endured for a long time across the West. We have seen a point in the history how fragile it can also be and how we have to defend that, those rights. But, but I think that change ultimately democracy comes from large groups of people voting uh, and believing that their vote matters. And I would say that politicians should start there make people believe their vote can change things. Um, thank you so much. I'm gonna have to wrap it up there, um, I'm afraid, because we are all out of time. Thank you to all of our speakers and thank you to the audience for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.